Welcome to AZMCast, the competitive emergency medicine podcast. Our goal on AZMCast is to demonstrate the knowledge, skills, and the approach to help you, the listener, be a top-notch emergency provider. Our panel of emergency specialists will go head-to-head as they navigate a case from the ring down to the workup to the dispo. Panelists will be awarded points for their quick wit, prioritization of tasks, and their clinical application of evidence-based medicine. However, they will lose points for weak arguments that rely on experience-based medicine and the use of banned, unhelpful jargon like gestalt or high index of suspicion or just because I feel like it. The panelists with the most points at the end of each episode will have free reign during the art of EM to rant about whatever aspect of EM is near and dear to their hearts at that given moment. We encourage you, the listener, to pause the podcast at each segment and consider your own approach before going on with the discussion. And our hope is that you will develop a prioritized, evidence-based approach to emergency medicine that will carry you into your next shift. Hi, everyone. So for the July episode, we are not going to be doing a case, and it's mostly because everyone's out of town enjoying the wonderful, soon-to-be-less-COVID-free travel uh, that everyone is having right now. But we've got two of our lifers here uh, who've been with me for the life of this podcast, and I appreciate it greatly, Dr. Chris Williams and Dr. Brian Drummond. Hi, guys. Ahoy. Hi. Hello. So uh, we are going to be talking about something that is controversial and in your face all the time, uh, but not COVID, which is really great. Uh, Instead, we're going to be talking about early warning systems. Uh, This is just going to be a general discussion uh, rather than the competitive aspect that we'd have, because I don't think that anybody has a true right answer on what to do for this. Specifically, we're going to be talking about some of these sepsis alerts. And this is something that is going to be prevalent throughout your careers now that everyone is using EMRs, is there are ways to track and alert you for all kinds of things. Uh, But how useful they are or what you're going to do about them is sometimes determined by the patient, sometimes determined by you, and sometimes determined by your administration that thinks that this is really, really important. And even more so in the case of sepsis alerts, it's determined by the government. Uh, who's going to decide whether or not to keep paying you uh, or to shut you down. So sepsis has been uh, something that uh, has been all the rage for the last 20 years. And this goes back to the Manny Rivers uh, paper in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2001 that describes early goal-directed therapy. And early goal-directed therapy basically uh, said you have to meet all of these thresholds in order to try to treat a septic patient as, as uh, aggressively as possible. And they saw a 30% drop in their mortality by setting some goals, lactate levels, uh, blood pressure levels, uh, central venous pressure levels, and they treated aggressively and these patients got better. And so this early goal-directed therapy just seemed like a game changer. And then they did a bunch of multi-center trials and found that those uh, didn't show any difference between usual care and the early goal-directed therapy, the way that Manny Rivers uh, put it out there um, and said, see, you don't really need to do this early goal-directed therapy the exact way uh, that he did it. Uh, You can just kind of do what you need to do. Usual care is fine. But I think we can all say, because Chris and I were residents at this time, that usual care, as we were taught as residents, was 
early goal-directed therapy. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think the, the first big pushback to that was, was the degree of interventions that one had to do. For example, for example, measuring CVP. And uh, you and I were residents at the time when people were, were, I think, practicing pretty good care with regards to sepsis once it was recognized. And we'll talk about maybe there was room to improve on the recognition side of it. But um, on the uh, uh, increasing the, uh, the, the aggression with which we, we tackled uh, sepsis, I think that that was what the real big push and, and the, the good positive outcomes that came from that early goal-directed uh, therapy trials were. And that's where you and I were at, where every person who got septic, all of a sudden we're talking about, okay, we need a, a good central line so we can measure CDP on all these people. And then later maybe started getting a little bit more data that said that that's not super necessary. And that, that began the second, second, I'd say second wave of sepsis uh, research, which is maybe we don't need to be as aggressive or as interventional uh, with these patients. Yeah, I, I mean, this was um, when the Rivers paper came out. I mean, and Aaron was saying it's a thirty percent reduction in mortality. The absolute, I think, was about sixteen percent. So whenever, I mean, if if you look at any article and show an absolute reduction in mortality, you know, of over ten percent, that's huge. I mean, that like you just don't see that in articles. And so, it, you know, it kind of came out, and people looked at the article and like. I guess this is real, but before, you know, I was an intern in 2001 when that came out and we really didn't talk about it, but what we did do is we put grandma in the corner with her one dose of antibiotics and probably let her be. And that was the problem, right? That was, that was where we were before all this. We were just treating people. Oh, you have an infection. Here's some antibiotics, but we didn't really pay attention to it. And I think more than anything, um, and you'll see this in everything in medicine, if you pay attention to a disease process, the disease process numbers get better. People, you know, we, we pay attention to strokes, Stroke. people get better. We pay attention to MIs, they get better. You know, it's amazing. If you don't pay attention to someone, they don't do as well. Wow, this is brilliant, you know? I mean, that's, that's really what this was. It was a change of us, like bringing attention to a topic. And that attention has been now going on for 20 years. And oh my gosh, there's a lot with that. And, and I think I don't, we probably can't get too far into the weeds on sepsis without defining it. And the def, the, the, because the definition has gone from vague to defined, I think back to vague again. And we need to maybe explain what we mean by sepsis. And when I get on the phone and I talk to an, an admitting physician and I say, I'm worried this person is septic. They have a picture in my, in their head. And I don't know if they're using the same definition I am typically in that scenario, they're thinking, okay, this is a very sick septic patient. And that's usually what I mean when I say that, but when I'm talking to a new intern and we're, we're kind of doing the, the back and forth and I'm, I'm pimping a little bit, I say, is this patient septic? And then they, they define that. And I say, can this patient go home? And it blows their mind that I'm sending a septic patient home. Because the definite, you got to you got to got to rely on your definitions, um, and I think that's where a lot of this ambiguity comes from. So, how would you define it? Well, it depends on what year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because I mean, our definitions have changed the last twenty years, and you know, the surviving sepsis campaign has come out, and they've changed definitions and the definitions they previously defined, then they undefined, 
and redefine them. I mean, we've had sears, we've had sepsis, we've had severe sepsis, we had septic shock. Yep. You so you know, we have urosepsis. Now, now I'm defining the type of sepsis. I mean, we use these terms intermittently, and it was kind of based on what they were wanting us to look for, and then some vital signs and maybe a lactate. Um, you know, as opposed to just saying someone's septic. You know, before all this, there was the term septicemia. And septicemia just meant you had bacteria in your blood, you know, and that's why we did blood cultures to look for said bacteria in your blood. Um, and now you could be septic without septicemia. So there's, you know, it's this weird, I don't know. What is your definition? <laughs> I, I, I have ignored every change in sepsis definition since when I was a, a resident. And I uh, will continue to do so until I find something I like better. And I, I know there's flaws in that. Uh, I, I absolutely accept that. But I, I still am serves with the source. And then in my head, I don't use the term septic shock anymore, but I am where I, I recognize septic shock and I recognize severe sepsis. So, you know, it, Aaron may remember this better than I do, but you, you have a fluid response and so they required fluids to respond, that's severe sepsis, and then they don't respond after fluids and go on to needing pressors and that's septic shock. But you'll, you'll see patients, and just to put an example on it for, for maybe uh, newer learners, if you have a patient who comes into the department and it's the middle of flu season and they have a fever and they have tachycardia and you're dumb enough to get a white count and it's elevated, and then you say, I think you have flu, and then you discharge them, You've discharged a septic patient. And sometimes we'll see a patient who has like strep throat, famous example of strep throat. We don't often get their tachycardia under control before we send them home. And they often do have a white count. And we still send them home because here's the antibiotic that will fix. Brian may disagree with this, <laughs> but fix your, uh, your strep throat. And, um, and we send them home. So did I send home a septic patient who was still meeting sepsis criteria upon discharge? Of course I do. And we will, we do that during COVID. You'll do that with flu. And, and there's these certain conditions where you're okay with that. Um, and then there are other conditions where the, the, the disease is too ambiguous. Uh, and we don't know exactly if they do have a, a more severe occult bacteremic infection, um, or they have other risk factors, immunocompromisation or just age. And then we, we're, we, we hang on to those people. So for me, I'm still using SIRS plus a source equals sepsis. Um, and I, I don't think it steered me wrong, but that does sometimes steer me away from where some of these early warning um, protocols would, would lead me. I like the way you're saying this, Chris, because I think I use the same thing. I break it down as sepsis equals an admission. And if I don't use sepsis, they're going home. Yeah. No, I agree with you. They could be septic and going home. And this is one of those weird things, right? Because we send sepsis home. It's not that every septic patient needs admission. Yeah. You know, pyelonephritis is sepsis. Why do you think they get a fever? Because th there's such blood flow to the kidneys yeah. and the bacteria there, and there's probably translocation, but it's treatable. Yeah. And young people do well with that in the outpatient setting pyelonephritis in old people, we called urosepsis and we admit them. So I think my, I've like figuring this out has been sepsis equals an admission. And this also helped, you know, when we talk about charting and all these, you know, things later, 
if you don't write sepsis on your diagnostic, you know, um, algorithm, or you said, this is not represent sepsis, I think this is acute pharyngitis, you know, or something like that, you're not going to get dinged and you don't necessarily have to go down a bundle pathway. But I agree with you. It's like defining this. And this is hard. This is very subtle because we don't know where in the person's presentation they are, right? Are they, they've had this for a few days and they're probably going to be better tomorrow, or they've had this for a few days and this is like taking off and they're going to get really bad. Mm -hmm. And that's where the art, like sepsis is really, you know, artisanal, I think. I mean, Mm -hmm. this is, this is not defined. I mean, 20 years we're trying to define this and probably before that, but we don't even have it down now after 20 years of really working on this. Well, and I think that one of the reasons why it's so hard to define is because it's not one entity. It's the culmination of multiple entities that ends up with a really severe infection. Sepsis from pneumonia is not the same as sepsis from uh, pyelonephritis, which is not the same as sepsis from necrotizing fasciitis or necrotizing pancreatitis. It's a different kind of infection Uh, but it leads to something that we try to wrap our head around in sepsis. And I I think that when, what I liked about what Chris said was uh, there's sepsis and then there's sepsis. Like when you look at this patient, usually the word that tips me off is, well, technically they're septic, (laughs) um, which is what I hear from our juniors and seniors. Well, technically they're septic. Yeah. But when someone says, I'm worried this patient is septic or wow, that patient is septic, that we're, we're now talking about severe sepsis and septic shock. Mm-hmm. Uh, and keep in mind that when you've got like some of the traditional uh, definitions of this, sepsis being uh, two SERS criteria plus a source, which uh, SERS being a temperature greater than 38 or less than 36. Remember that hypothermia can be a part of bad infection, a heart rate greater than 90, respiratory rate greater than 20, and a white count greater than 12 or less than four. So two of those plus a suspected source uh, is sepsis by you know traditional criteria that we've based a lot of our other research on. Um, and then if you add in a lactate greater than four, you have severe sepsis. And then if you add in hypotension, you get septic shock. I would argue that the line between severe sepsis and septic shock is very thin and that severe sepsis and septic shock both need to be treated just as aggressively. Septic shock is overt, but severe sepsis is just as scary uh, because this is a patient that's not perfusing. They're not perfusing their brain or their heart or their gut or anything else. And that's why their lactate's going up. So they do need aggressive treatment. Uh, When uh, a few years after uh, uh, the early goal-directed therapy came out, we actually had the privilege of having Manny Rivers come and talk to us at the U of A. And uh, it was hilarious because he basically very nonchalantly presented his research and and then presented all of the research against all of his research and said, you don't have to do this. You don't have to do CVP. You don't have to measure all these things. You don't have to do all this stuff. And he goes, I don't care. Just do something. I don't care which one you do, but don't let them sit there and die. And so that's where this push comes from, because we now are recognizing all of this stuff. But there's been some good uh, literature. Uh, There's a study 
uh, in uh, crit- critical care medicine in 2018 that said that presenting symptoms uh, independently predicts mortality in septic shock. So a third of patients with septic shock present to the ED with vague symptoms. They didn't present with, I've had dysuria, flank pain, and fever. I've had abdominal pain and bloody stools. I've had the worst headache of my life and nuchal rigidity. They just had vague symptoms. And those are the ones that did poorly. Hence the reason to try to come up with all of these early warning systems so that we don't miss a third of the patients that are in severe sepsis or septic shock. Uh, But that leads to quite a few overcalls. So as a quick review of your biostatistics, because I'm more of a principal guy, if you asked me to give you the true sensitivity or specificity, I probably couldn't do it. But as a principal guy, I know that your sensitivity is going to be, I can't miss any of this stuff. I need something that is sensitive so that I don't miss anything. But my specificity is going to be the trade-off there. And I am going to lose out and overcall a bunch of people who are septic if I want a wide sensitivity. Now, my positive predictive value and negative predictive value are the same thing. If my test is positive, if my early warning system goes off, does that mean this patient has sepsis? If you want a high positive predictive value of like this goes off, they have the disease, that's going to trade off for a negative predictive value that's going to say if they don't have uh, SIRS, uh, then they don't have sepsis. And this culminates in what, we're, what we need to figure out when we apply these sepsis criteria, which is the number needed to treat versus the number needed to harm. So thinking of risks and benefits, which is every aspect of our job that you will do thousands of times every shift, risk and benefit, risk and benefit. How many people do I need to treat with one of these early warning systems to save one patient who uh, would have had a bad outcome otherwise? But how many people am I harming by applying this early warning system to everyone? And that's where we don't have a whole lot of great data yet. But we still plug away with a lot of these warning systems to see, can any of these uh, help us to figure out uh, which patients are going to benefit and which ones aren't? You know, one thing that never gets factored when we try to analyze these early warning uh, protocols is not just the sensitivity of it or the specificity of it or it's PPV or NPV or even it's number needed to treat it, but also the what's never measured is how that affects department efficiency. And if I have these protocols in place, does that, is that, is that causing enough uh, noise in the system and enough safe alerts that I have to sign um, going to a room where there's a patient that I've already treating that I have to go back to because it's now triggering some sort of alert or a patient in triage who now needs to be up triaged ahead of other people, does that cause enough noise, chaos, and inefficiency in the system that I'm actually seeing fewer people on shift or treating them, um, having to do more for a single person and decrease that efficiency in that flow? Um, it, there, there probably is a real world harm just in the, in the fact that I'm not seeing as many people or theoretically not seeing as many people in those systems um, that, and, that, and that's, not being, that's not being measured. To my knowledge, I don't think I've ever seen that measured. 
I don't think so. And, and, you know, Jared's not here, but that's Jared's least, fa- uh, Jared Mosier, one of our intensivists, that's his least favorite argument is thinking mm-hmm. of the department as a patient versus the patients as a patient. But, you know, I've got a lobby full of people that are still undifferentiated, that many of them might have sepsis. So do you, you know, you run into that trolley problem of do you treat the one in front of you and potentially neglect the rest? Or do you do less for the person in front of you because what's out there might actually be worse? Very tough decision. I think I may have convinced Jared to at least accept that the department and efficiency is equal to a patient. So not the most important patient, but if I've got 10 patients in front of me, I should consider the department and flow as an 11th patient and, and factor that into my calculation. I think, he, I think I could get him to, I think I got him to agree to that. Well, I, I think you're bringing up a good point, though, Chris, with this, because it's not just our time, but it's also the lab tech's time. It's also the nurse's time. So if the nurse has to get yeah. the second set of blood cultures, well, they're not giving the albuterol to the asthmatic, or they haven't discharged the other patient, or the brace isn't put on the ankle for somebody else, or, oh, we got to get the we got to get the second set of blood cultures. Oh, they're a hard stick. Now we do got to do an ultrasound yeah. IV. Yeah. Now, oh, now we got to, oh, we got to get the antibiotics on board, but I'm going to wait until I get my second set of blood cultures. You know, it's, you run into these questions and I got to go back to the pharmacy and wait for something or the vancomycin takes an hour to run in. So now I've, that's too, you know, I got to start the pump. I got to stop the pump. So, you know, it's, and I, all of this really, it can't, it takes up a lot of time and energy. And I can give you real world, you know, examples. So you have a patient who we talked about the, the, the early pyelonephritis patient who has either a white count elevation, a fever, tachycardia, something where they truly are meeting sepsis definitions, even our old school sepsis definitions, they're triggering these alerts. So we're being aggressive. And so what we, we, as long as we, we, let's say we recognize they have pylo, we are treating them correctly, I would argue correctly. And now we have to do these other things like getting blood cultures. So great. I'm getting a blood culture on a patient who has an infection in a body fluid that I can obtain without sticking a needle in a patient. And I can get culture sensitivities that are better than the ones I'm going to get from the blood. And let's say I start them on the correct antibiotic and then they improve with fluids and antibiotics in the department, I send them home. And then two days later, they get a phone call because one of their two tubes grew out something in the blood. They're already on the correct antibiotic. They're already feeling better. And then they come back to the emergency department because we tell them to, and that's another patient in the lobby that has to go through the same rigmarole again. I just find that very silly. So that's some of the harm. And that's, uh, you know, the over-testing, the diagnostic momentum, uh, the false positives. That's some of the harm that we need to dis- we need to consider as we're going through some of these patients. And, you know, there is not a single uh, score out there, not PERC criteria, not WELLS, not uh, heart score. None of these uh, systems out there will allow you to do cookie cutter medicine of where, uh, you know, you're just replaced uh, like idiocracy where you just scan your tattoo and they'll tell you what's wrong with you. Uh, now we, we also need some help. Sometimes <clears throat> the, uh, the advent of all these EMRs makes it really easy to pick out some numbers and to point it out to you, which you get to choose to incorporate into the patient you have in front of you as a clinician or to ignore. 
And so there's a lot of these. There's uh, there's uh, Muse, there's News, there's News 2, there's Pews, there's Mewtwo. There's so many of these that one of those was a Pokemon character and you probably didn't know which one unless you were especially nerdy or a pediatrician. But all of these, listen to you, used to. all of these are based off of abnormal vital signs. They're all based off of just when that patient comes in, what's their blood pressure, their heart rate, their respiratory rate, their temperature. Are they alert, reacts only to voice, reacts to pain or unresponsive. And now the brand new addition of do they have COVID or do they need oxygen? There's really not a whole lot of like pressing science. If you ever think that there's not new, st- uh, uh, that there aren't like new simple research things you can do, how about just coming up with uh, a big data set and saying that it turns out that the large majority of unconscious patients tend to have severe disease? Who would have thought that, you know? Really? But that's what we use. And, you know, kind of playing both sides of this. That there is also, as you're flying through a busy shift and you've got patients who are overtly sick and you do have a lobby that is, you know, bursting at the seams and you're moving, you can overlook some of these patients because you didn't look and see that their heart rate is actually 130 uh, and they've got bad alcohol withdrawal. Or you didn't look and see that they need oxygen and they're not previously on oxygen. So they're not to totally uh, denigrate EMRs, uh, but there is some benefit to saying, have your EMR go, hey, did you, did you know this patient's got abnormal vitals? Oh, wow, they do. Yes, I was paying attention EMR and I don't appreciate you telling me otherwise. So putting all of these together, these alerts have their moments, mm-hmm. but they can also overwhelm you to the point of where you get severe alarm fatigue. And it's not just, it, you know, I think we would all recognize the need for there to be some sort of um, warning system and I, I think those places are in triage. And then and uh, at some point, you know, in the department also. But um, when you're having these alarms pop up, uh, sending out pages and then, an, uh, and then a form that mandates that you fill it out and sign it, adding to the patient's record without being able to move on and see a super critical hypotensive patient's chart that you need to put orders in that, that that's when it becomes uh, insane, I think. Well, and uh, you know, you can page out, uh, Brian mentioned earlier, if you pay more attention to a certain group, they'll, you know, they'll have better outcomes. But when you have every group, you have a code stroke and a code blue and a code sepsis and a code trauma and a code fracture and a code, Foley malfunction, you know, everybody needs to be seen right now, then everyone comes back to being equal again. Well, I was going to say, you know, in part of these, you know, alerts, the question is, how much do people need to be uh, active into it? So how much of these alerts need to come to the physician? How many need to come to the nurse? You know, and screening over time has changed. I mean, it used to be, um, you know, when we started out, it was uh, serious criteria, concern for infection, you would get a venous gas and lactate. Lactate elevated, you would think about fluids and blood cultures. Lactate not elevated, you don't have to worry about it. Now it's, you know, the whole like call in the Navy, Marines and Air Force, and we got to, you know, drop down and take care of everything for every little safe alert that goes on or whatever your uh, sepsis 
alert is. So I think there's various ways that you could, you know, we could better set up our alerts in what we're really looking for. Um, you know, is it better just to do a, a single um, lactate on a patient maybe with abnormal vital signs than all the blood cultures? I would argue yes, um, based on cost and harms, you know, as you guys were alluding to before. You know, and then how many of these have to come to the physician? And at what point, you know, do we need the alert versus not the alert? You know, and that's a systems question. That's a, that's a big systems question because we do get so many alerts, right? How many alerts do you get from pharmacy? And, and we're alerted to everything that we just, especially in EMRs, we just plow through. I mean, rarely do, I'll, I'll freely admit, I rarely look at them anymore. You're just like, okay, another one, right, great. You know, you look at the side of our tracking board, every, you know, half the patients are safe alerted. Um, and I'm like, well, I only have two infectious patients I'm worried about and the rest I have reasons for. So I think it's just how do we need to better form those systems. Uh, and that's a bigger, a bigger picture, not necessarily the medicine component. So I'm going to wade carefully into this uh, as we start to talk about these. We keep using the term safe alert. And for those of you that are new or those of you that aren't, uh, that don't work at our hospital, a safe alert is our version of a sepsis alert. Um, and there are many like ours, but this one's mine. Um, and uh, it, is, uh, it is our alert to say this is a patient that has a high risk of sepsis. And they're not wrong, uh, but this is a very sensitive alert, not a very specific alert. So what triggers our alert in our EMR is going to be uh, two surge criteria plus one uh, sign of uh, end organ dysfunction. So the surge criteria we talked about, organ dysfunction could be an elevated creatinine, which is uh, greater than two and increased from prior, uh, low platelets, uh, elevated PTT, hypoxemia, uh, positive delirium assessment, a MAP less than 65, a systolic blood pressure less than 90, a lactate greater than two, an INR greater than 1.5. Uh, low urine output for two hours, and my favorite, a bilirubin that's greater than two. I just um, learned that one last night. I had two of them that popped up for a bilirubin greater than two. All of these have their place because they do have uh, occur with sepsis. When you are septic, you displace your bilirubin from your albumin and your bilirubin level will go up. However, how many other things can make your bilirubin go up? a lot, uh, especially liver disease or gallbladder disease. Um, if you've got, uh, if you're on blood thinners, that can make your INR go up. Uh, if you've got a patient uh, who has chronic kidney disease, their creatinine is going to be high. Um, and you've got plenty of these, even with the white blood cell counts uh, that can be elevated. Amamatu calls it the last bastion of the in, uh, intellectually destitute. So I don't know what else to do. Let's get basic labs. Um, but you can, it's just a stress response. So it could be infection. It could be uh, trauma. It could be seizure. Um, it could be a, a steroids that they're taking. It could be a lot of things. Um, I didn't get to a patient fast enough one time to look and see that they had no titus media and they had already gotten labs drawn and the white count was high. Well, strep pneumo causes your white count to get high, but we found the source. And I discharged that septic ear infection home uh, after giving them some Tylenol and then making sure they were okay. So 
this is not again to like denigrate and say like what a ridiculous thing this has its purpose it does help you to recognize that many of these patients are at risk that you might not have thought of before. Because I remember as a resident seeing abnormal vital signs and saying, well, but they're not sick looking. That does not mean they're not septic either. Just because you look at them and say they don't look sick. We just talked about a paper that said that a third of those patients were in septic shock and end up having bad outcomes. So this is something that you come alongside with and you uh, look at the look at these vital sign ab abnormalities, consider these end organ dysfunction criteria in uh, the uh, context of the patient you're treating, and then determine does this patient have a high risk of sepsis? Do they have a risk of sepsis at all? Because it's a major killer. And if you over-treat them and give them antibiotics they don't need, what is the harm? If you under-treat them, what is the harm? And you have to make those decisions thousands of times every, every shift that you work for the rest of your life. Doesn't this sound like fun? Some of the harm is antibiotic resistance. We're starting to chew through uh, antibiotics and their sensitivities uh, again. I think we go through this in, in phases. And then another, I, you know, if you can, if you administer medications IV uh, to the, to, if you increase that tenfold, you're going to have uh, more instances of what I would call maybe pseudo allergies. Um, patients feel funny or something and it gets put on their allergy list. And that um, for that patient has now eliminated an antibiotic, maybe unnecessarily. You see that happening. That's it. We've done, um, you know, we did this before in like the 2000s with, uh, used to be every, you were missing pneumonias. So it was very specific. All these patients were admitted with pneumonias and we're not getting antibiotics in the ER. And that led to basically every admitted patient getting a dose of Levaquin before they went upstairs so that no one got dinged and they would get paid. So we did the same dance with CMS for just pneumonias. And you had to get blood cultures because obviously blood cultures help pneumonia. Um, you know, even though that's been proven to be totally opposite, it got into the system and only way you're going to get paid is because of that. So, you know, there are harms for a lot of this. I think antibiotics is one. I think, you know, sometimes you meet these patients and they look maybe septic and then you think, well, maybe they have heart failure, but I got to give them a fluid bolus, but I don't give them a fluid bolus. I'm going to get in trouble. And I didn't repeat the lactate, um, you know, continuing blood draws even of itself, right? A blood draw has, you can cause a superficial thrombophlebitis just from an IV stick. I mean, that's, that's a harm. We don't talk about it because it's not a major harm, um, but it could be a pain in the butt to the patient. Um, you know, cost goes into this. There's lots of things that are harms in doing this. You know, I, I think the, the positive blood cultures and people coming back in when they feel great and look great you know, one is a big cost to the patient. Two, it's a big time thing. Three, it leads to unnecessary testing and sometimes extra hospital admission, which then can put people at, you know, at risk for DVTs or, you know, one test begets another test. And now we go down uh, another rabbit hole. So I think you're right on with this, Chris, that, you know, we are, we're trying to balance, you know, this is a balance. When do I initiate and go after the stuff, but when do I hold back? And I think it's important that, you know, the, the residents and, and learners um, realize that these things are kind of on a pendulum um, and uh, you, 
it, I, I recognize my own hypocrisy in very recent statements here, but you, you assume that the way medicine is practiced when you graduate residency is the way it's supposed to be or going to be for the rest of your life. Um, and that is uh, completely not true. So just to, if I haven't put a fine point on it yet, the, when I, when, when I was in your shoes as a resident, uh, when Aaron and I were, were sitting there, we were giving lectures about inappropriate use of, uh, of ordering of lactates, inappropriate blood cultures. And we were, we were receiving lectures and we had protocols in place that prevented us from just ordering willy nilly lactates on people or blood cultures on people. And we were talking a lot more about us being more specific with our antibiotic administration. It was this term called stewardship um, that people kept throwing around that, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And so I, I have no reason to, to, to doubt that, that the pendulum will swing back again. And, um, you know, there's probably a, um, a, place of wisdom in, in the middle, um, and recognizing that balance. And we were also being taught, uh, pain is the fifth vital sign. We were being taught a lot of different things that were kind of, you know, you look back in medicine's history, medicine has, uh, some incredibly questionable things, uh, that, that they've done, or if you go back, you know, a hundred years, but if you go back just, you know, a few decades, uh, many medical students will be like, what was wrong with you all? I mean, what mm-hmm. a stupid idea. Didn't you know? No, we didn't. But now we know. And so we've got a better idea. And so we're trying to go forward. My, uh, my feeling with this, uh, with what we're doing with sepsis is uh, that this is a pretty natural progression with medicine. We find that there is a uh, disease out there and we find a new modality that makes a huge difference. And all of a sudden, we go from just letting people suffer from it that now everybody gets it. But then we find that a lot of people are getting harms until we identify the people that are truly going to benefit. So we used to just let people, uh, we used to give thrombolytics or we would just, you know, wouldn't be able to do much about a STEMI. Then we started cathing people and we said, this is great. Let's cath everyone. And I mean, everyone that comes in that might have any kind of occlusion. And we found that not only is there a huge cost associated with that, but there's a harm. You're harming a bunch of people by doing that. And so we eventually settled on, we have a a better idea, not still a firm idea, but a better idea of who needs to go to cath and who doesn't. Trauma surgeons used to take everyone to the OR. You can, it's a chance to heal with some steel, but over time, they realized that, you know, the more people we take, we actually are causing harm in many of these patients. We have better modalities um, with IR and gel foam. Uh, they actually do better if we leave their spleen in place and just transfuse them. So a lot of trauma surgery became less operative. And that's when we figured out which people will benefit and which won't. And I firmly believe with sepsis that we let people die for years and years. And then now we are on the upswing of where everyone is going to be treated for sepsis because we don't know which patients will benefit and which will not. Definitely the overtly sick people will benefit. But what about that third that has vague symptoms that is going to have a bad outcome? How do we know who is who? We don't but we're working on it, trying to figure it out now. And we're stuck in this massive upswing of where no one is allowed to die from sepsis. Well, I, with these swings, it, it seems to go where we 
we get some uh, some data points. There's some studies that start to show maybe something's important for a disease process, whatever that is. Um, it then starts to propagate more studies to confirm that or show that this is important. And then eventually we start implementing it in our practice. As we start to implement it in our practice, then it starts to reach the level of uh, governmental uh, intervention where they say, oh, this is important. And something gets brought up to CMS and then they start to tie it either to billing or your JCO report or something else. And then it comes down through your administrators and now they're telling you what you have to do. And then we realize we way overdid it and we start to put studies out to say, okay, I think we overdid where we're at and now we're trying to fine tune. And then we eventually back off from a governmental and joint commission and whatever administrative component, and we get back to a better uh, practice. And this seems to be just cycling over and over for different topics in medicine. And you will see this multiple times in your career. And I think it's coming, it's not that you can't, you know, that you don't do what, you know, like, oh, you have to do a sepsis, sepsis bundle or we're not gonna get, um, you know, paid. We have to realize we're complicit in some ways our administrators, you know, are stuck in their role because they're being told by on high and they're being pushed down from, you know, and those people are being pushed down from a higher source. So there's a lot of pressure from that. You just need to know down deep, what do you think is the best practice for these patients? You may not always be able to do it based on the confines of your system. But if you know in your heart and you've looked at the literature and you have a good idea of what you think is really good, there'll be a time where things get better. And I think, you know, that's kind of a hopeful message that I know it seems like we're, you know, we've been down on lots of things over the years and things have been, you know, pressure and you got to do this and got to do that. But there, you know, you still should know what is right from wrong in terms of uh, what's going on. There's a recent study, I think uh, I'll send out that actually looked, did a review and are these bundles appropriate? And it came out and didn't show any mortality benefit. So as we start to get more and more, uh, you know, evidence that comes out about that, you're going to start to see. And that was in uh, JAM Internal Medicine 2020 uh, by Baghdadi. And they looked at basically healthcare bundles versus uh, early sepsis management and the mortality and hospital onset or community onset sepsis. So you're starting to see studies that are coming out that these care bundles don't have mortality benefit, which is the whole point of the care bundle is to decrease our sepsis uh, mortality. So I think as more of those come, we'll probably see this start to change. So just wait. So Brian, I'm glad you brought up uh, the big three letters, CMS, uh, because it's, it's easier to pick on the federal government than it is to pick on the people that pay my paycheck. Um, so I'll pick on the people that pay their paycheck uh, with CMS because then it, you at least have a couple degrees removed between them. Um, but CMS has set up some of these bundles. And so the CMS bundle that they have with regards to sepsis is that you have three hours to obtain a, lact a venous lactate level, to obtain blood cultures times two, uh, to give either a 30 ml per kilogram bolus of crystalloid or to run crystalloid at hundred and uh, greater than 125 mLs an hour, and then to give broad spectrum an antibiotics. I think for the lactate level, 
fine. Check a lactate level, interpret it in the setting of the patient in front of you. If you have a patient that meets SIRS criteria and you can look at them and say their lactate level is 15 because they seized in front of me for the last 10 minutes, you know, 10 minutes. Well, great. Then that's what it is. And you can document in their chart and you will be fine. Um, do you need to obtain blood cultures and do all these other things? If you know exactly what the disease is, that's fine. But you also have to be a little bit honest with yourself that oftentimes we don't know what the disease is. What if that patient actually had meningitis? What if that patient's seizure was set off by an infection that you find later? Um, so, you know, checking that the, the lactate level is usually the easiest one for us to say, sure, we'll check a lactate as a screen for patients that uh, show up and have SIRS. Um, blood cultures, super expensive to get. Uh, we were overloading our lab and our uh, incubator space with all the blood cultures that we ordered during COVID because so many patients came in with COVID and very few of them had bacterial infections, but they all met sepsis criteria and they all got screened. Now, I still, if I've got a patient that looks like COVID, smells like COVID, sounds like COVID, I'm still treating them for community-acquired pneumonia because I know even though I, as a clinician, am very you know, certain you have COVID, I might be wrong. And so my risk benefit for uh, harm of antibiotics versus benefit of antibiotics is usually going to trend toward, let's treat you as pneumonia because I can see this on your chest that you've got a big infiltrate. Uh, there's the 30 ml per kilo bolus. Um, basically, they want you to give them fluids because we know that patients that get fluids have a uh, benefit compared to patients that do not get fluids. Uh, the th if you give them 29.9 mLs per kilo, I really don't think that they're going to die versus patients that get 30. And as Brian said earlier, if they've got heart failure, they've got anasarca, they actually meet SERS criteria because they need to be dialyzed because they have volume overload probably not a good one to just stick rigidly to the guidelines. You just have to explain what's going on. Uh, and then the broad spectrum antibiotics uh, can be quite a bit. I actually think it's very interesting to look at what they consider broad spectrum and what they do not. Broad spectrum antibiotics include ceftriaxone, cefepime, piptazo or zosin, uh, ampsilbactam or unison, Levofloxacin, ciprofloxacin, and meropenem. Those are all considered broad-spectrum antibiotics, and that makes sense because they will treat a broad uh, range of bacteria. Vancomycin, clindamycin, azithro, and metronidazole are not considered broad-spectrum antibiotics, which is great because they're not. They're actually very, very narrow spectrum, even though they are... Uh, uh, you know, sometimes very aggressive, something like Vank is going to be very aggressive antibiotic. Um, they're not broad spectrum. So these are never the ones that you want to give first because they're not going to get to the majority of what will cause sepsis, severe sepsis and septic shock. So these are things to consider when you meet these patients. Uh, this is what's going to be in front of you because this is what the federal government has linked to uh, everything. They've linked to uh, repayment. They've linked to uh, your uh, to JCO findings, Joint Commission findings. They've linked to a lot of uh, our metrics, and so within all that, we have to consider with the patient in front of us. Do I think that this patient has this disease? And if you're not sure, go for it. 
There's a study that shows that there's a good proportion of patients in cardiac arrest that end up in bacteremia later in their ICU stay. Now, whether they went down from sepsis or whether they had like gut bacteria translocation into their blood is unclear. But to give a patient who just died some antibiotics just in case they're sepsis, that seems like a pretty good benefit just to you know throw it in. But it shouldn't doesn't need to be the very first thing you do. You need to get them that, that good post ROS care and everything. But it is something to consider. And I don't think that's a patient that I ever thought of is like, oh yeah, I guess they do meet sepsis criteria. I would more call them ROSC because that's the you know more pressing thing that I can see in front of them. But looking at some of these patients. And not just blindly saying they meet the criteria, let's check them off. Instead saying, you know, unless I have a definitive reason that they don't meet sepsis criteria, that they're not septic, uh, then, you know, do I err on the side of giving more antibiotics, getting more blood cultures, giving more fluids? As long as you can't see an overt harm to it, then we're still figuring out what we're doing. So I'm going to argue on the pro side that if you've got one of these sepsis alerts that fires, unless you can tell me why not, we haven't figured out who to treat and who not yet. I would bomb away with a little uh, vitamin R, give them some rocephin, and then uh, go on to your next patient. I think Brian said it, said it really, really well. <clears throat> no, no, Aaron. No, Aaron. <laughs> no, I agree with what you said, Aaron. Completely, I completely agree with what you said. But I, I just wanted to echo uh, Brian with you know, bureaucracies are going to continue to be slow to respond to trends, and they're going to be heavy-handed. And we're going to feel like sometimes the policies that the bureaucracy, be it either the government or a, a large uh, healthcare management organization invokes, we're going to be stuck there. But the the saving grace for us as a physician, the place of serenity for us is looking at the person in front of you, learning new data that makes you a bright physician, and then doing what's right for that person in front of you. And 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 I, I think if you do that, you you you're balancing the trends that that have good motives behind them. And probably there are things that we can, that I could learn from those trends. And you're balancing that with what you think is good patient care in front of you, managing your department well. Um, and, and Aaron, the antibiotics with a, with a ROSC patient, that makes sense to me. And uh, it's something that, you know, maybe it didn't, I never thought of when I was a resident, but at some point in, in my career and in, in learning about the translocation and and I thought, you know, that, that actually makes sense to me. So that seems like good patient care. And that's something that, you know, because it's not, it's not protocolized, you have to think about and be, be actually, like Brian said, an artesian, you have to be the doctor thinking about the person in front of you and just doing the right, right thing for them. And that's, it's gratifying. It's the, the art of medicine um, that uh, we're all striving for. Well, and I, I, think knowing, you know, when Aaron says, you know, with the administrators and everything, the, the hospital administration is interested in this because if you look at a patient's bill, you're not losing that much because CMS doesn't pay for the sepsis, but the hospital is. Most of the patient's bill is hospital, you know, administration and uh, basically the health care, you know, the, not the physician fees. It's not that. This is why you're going to see tons of emails from your administrators because this is facility fees. 
for the hospital. It, it, and you just have to know what it is, right? That is the nature of the beast that we live in, in our medical system and how the payments are. Yeah, you may miss on $100 because you didn't say sepsis, but you're not missing on the $3,000 that they're charging. Um, and so it, it's, you know, it is the nature of the beast. And I liked how Aaron said, um, you know, unless you have another definitive diagnosis. And I would say it's hard to have a definitive diagnosis for many things we did. It's almost diagnostic uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And if there was some way that we could talk about that <laughs> with sepsis, that would be incredible. But I, I think it's, you know, everything that we do is a probability. So if your probability that this person does not have sepsis is to a point where you are comfortable, then no, you don't have to go down a sepsis pathway. If it's lower than that point and you're not comfortable enough to call it and your probability is there, you probably should consider sepsis because it is. It's, you know, we talked about lots of diseases like to claim that they're the great masquerader, but I mean, sepsis is a hard, you know, people will say they're weak, they'll have pain, they have, you know, a little short of breath. I mean, the overlap that we see with sepsis with, you know, how many other presentations makes it difficult. So anyway. Yeah, I just worked a, a few North Pod shifts and I was looking at those those charts and um, I was seeing a diagnosis of fever after fever after fever or diagnosis of um, cough. Uh, I had I had one that said sore throat. I had one that said otalgia. Those are all the things the patient came to the department complaining of. And I and um, it bothers me quite a bit when I see uh, physicians um, talking in the doc box, me and the resident, we explain why the patient's having a fever. We diagnose them with a viral infection. We go in and we tell the parents why we either are or are not giving antibiotics. We tell them we think it's a virus. And then we discharge them with this vague, ambiguous diagnosis and never write in their discharge papers, viral syndrome or explained virus, why they don't need antibiotics. And then I think chart reviewers or administrators or, or, or anyone doing research at the CMS level goes through that and they see this patient met a PUSE criteria or met a SERS criteria or a, a safe alert at our shop. And, um, and the doctor didn't even know what it was because they diagnosed them with fever. And, and I think it perpetuates the problem. So uh, trying to um, eliminate that diagnostic uncertainty, at least in your documentation, I think will actually improve things for us. Now, I'm not saying to make up a diagnosis. And if you're truly not cl- clear, it's not clear to you, and there is some ambiguity there, then you're, you need to have a discussion with the family, if it's peds or with the patient if it's older and, um, and, and they need to understand that this is sometimes not clear cut, but I would argue, especially in the North pod, these kind of uh, quicker pediatric patients where you have a diagnosis, we've talked about it. You know what you you think the, the problem is just hang your hat on that, be a doctor, make a diagnosis. And, you know, if they have strep throat, you can diagnose them with strep pharyngitis. You don't need to put sore throat and fever on these people. Just, own it. Chris, with, you, know, you raise a good question with that because I think what I've been taught in the past and have heard people say is they leave it as fever and yep. cough because they don't want to write viral syndrome on the chart and medical legally something else developed 
And then they say, oh, look, you diagnosed it with a viral syndrome and you were wrong. It was, it was appendicitis or it was pneumonia, doctor. You're wrong. But so, I, so I've heard people say, if you think it's something, you can put that in your medical decision making. You know, this most likely represents a viral syndrome. I gave precautions for whatever, but you're, you're in a sense telling them what you think it is in your chart, but you're not necessarily putting it as the diagnosis. Now, wh- what do you do? How do you? I, I think that's a fallacy, and I think we've flipped it on its head. And what you should do is in the documentation explain why you don't think it's sepsis. And then diagnose them with what you do think it is. Because what you're going to do if you get called to court in that situation where you have diagnosed someone with a vague, vague complaint, you're going to, to, to spend the rest of the time on the stand arguing why you think it's this other diagnosis that you could have just put down in the chart in the first place. And so I, and I think it's better patient care anyway. You're, they're there to, for you to make a diagnosis. Far better to, for you to make an educated diagnosis that you think really is what's going on, not arguing to make something up. If you don't know, don't say it. But if you're pretty darn confident that that person's fever is secondary to a kidney infection and and, and you put pyelonephritis, I can't tell you how many times I die. I, I sign a chart or sometimes I'll correct it. If I'm, if I'm being lazy, I'll just sign it. And it says flank pain and fever or dysuria. I'm like, no, just call it what it is. It's a UTI or it's pylo. So I've had uh, a couple of these where I've, I've put in the medical decision-making, I went back and added it because this has been a big deal uh, with all of these sepsis alerts firing. And like Brian said, you get uh, emails from your administration. Fortunately, we get emails from our uh, wonderful uh, saint-like uh, medical director uh, who is amazing uh, and, uh, fights our battles and represents us well. And so we want to represent her well as also, uh, but I have gone in and put in the medical decision-making, uh, a sepsis alert fired for this patient. However, I felt that given her positive pregnancy test and hemoperitoneum, that it was likely an ectopic pregnancy (laughs) and not sepsis. Therefore the patient was taken to the OR and was not treated for sepsis. That sounds ridiculous, but it's uh, it's a degree of what you might have to do for some of these patients. And it is good to explain the medical decision making. I, I think for uh, a lot of charts, the more like stock phrases you have in there, the less helpful it is for you. Um, but if you are a brand new intern and you don't have a good sense of what sepsis is and what it isn't, then you probably are going to be over-treating a bunch of patients with sepsis. And that's fine. If you do not see a bunch of kids because you worked at the VA for 15 years, and now you go into a community practice where you don't see a bunch of kids, you'll learn about them, but you may be overworking up some kids. And that's fine because you want to consider what's best for the patient first. 100% of the time, what's best for the patient has to come first. Uh, But as you keep training, when you become a junior resident and you've got that year of experience, now even more so you don't know what you're doing. And you think no one is septic and no one is ever sick. And there are no such things as emergencies unless they're overt. And then as a senior, you go, oh, I got burned a bunch as a junior. I remember that patient that looked fine and they ended up coding in the ED from ascending cholangitis or something crazy like that, because some of these patients do burn you. So as you're going through your diagnostic uncertainty, your willingness to say, I'm not quite sure what it is, 
And so I'm going to treat for sepsis because that could kill this patient, but I don't know. Uh, is just the same as I don't know what's causing your belly pain, but your vital signs are normal, your labs look okay, and you have an unimpressive exam, I would recommend you come back in 24 hours. Diagnostic uncertainty works both ways. Sometimes you have to overtreat because the patient in front of you is presenting facts that they are unwell. And sometimes you will do less because the patient in front of you seems well, even though uh, they still you know, have pain or they still have some problems. We always joke about, we should build the entrance of the emergency department. You just crawl through a CAT scan machine and then you get a gram of triaxone in the butt. And then we take your chief complaint and your history and physical and stuff, you know, uh, which we're not far off from that. Uh, we get a lot of labs back. You know, I have a lot of residents presenting the labs as part of their history and physical during the presentation. And, you know, that's kind of where we're at with medicine, but there is a degree of recognizing it's okay. If you don't know exactly what it is, as long as you take care of those life, limb, site, fertility, threatening injuries, uh, and illnesses that we always have to be looking for. Seps, it's so hot right now. <laughs> so when it comes down to it, you, you're going to continue to have these early warning systems. You're going to continue to have an EMR that beeps at you like an alarm clock uh, that you need to reconsider some things for this patient. Um, some of this is to your benefit uh, because you may not be paying close attention to every single patient that comes in and sometimes you'll overlook some things. Uh, that's why we have nurses and pharmacists and medics and your uh, doctor that you work alongside of or signing out to uh, that says, hey, have you considered that this patient might be septic? Uh, but in the same right, it's probably not a good idea to hurry up and get blood cultures and hang the antibiotics on the patient that has uh, a gunshot wound. Um, instead, you want to prioritize what's good medicine for them and go after it. I think that these uh, alerts are something that we should take seriously for right now until we have the rest of the data that shows uh, who is going to benefit and who is not. And there's a discussion that can be had with the patient. As Chris and Brian both said, I do the same. I send patients who are septic home, but I correct their sepsis before they go home. If I give you Tylenol and your heart rate comes down and your fever comes down, and you've got pylo, plenty of uh, patients with pyelonephritis are treated on an outpatient basis. Same with diverticulitis, same with pneumonia, but we're emergency doctors. And so we think, well, that can't happen uh, because everyone that comes in is going to have the worst case scenario. And not everybody, not everybody does. The shared decision-making is a very important discussion, but you have to be open to what the patient's needs are. You have to be open for uh, some of this diagnostic uncertainty of telling patients, I don't know, you could get worse when you go home or you could be fine. Right now, all the evidence we have points to one or the other. This is the, recommend or this is the decision that I would recommend as far as discharge or admission. And if you got to give something you're not quite sure if they're septic or you think they're probably not septic, but maybe they could be, and you're going to be admitting them. Uh, we've been overdoing ceftriaxone for decades. So on that note, Brian and Chris, thank you very much for joining us. And uh, we look forward to another year of uh, wacky cases and even wackier contestants. So thank you guys. And we will talk to you next month. <laughs>